Welcome to this episode of Van Attorneys Legal Pad Podcast. This is a podcast by Van Attorneys PLLC, a law firm of attorneys licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina. The content of this podcast is not to be considered as legal advice for any particular situation or case, and this podcast does not constitute creating an attorney-client relationship. Welcome to another session of Van Attorney's Legal Pad Podcast. Uh, Ian Richardson and I, James Van, we're uh, sitting in another room today with the sun shining on us, and it's a mighty nice day. And so we got we're going to be talking about uh, some deal dealing with trials and judgments in just a little bit. But before we get into that, Ian, we're going to pick up a topic of something that we feel like is sort of pressing uh, on potential business owners, and that's dealing with ransomware issues. Uh, we can't tell you how to do it from a uh, technical standpoint, but uh, what do business owners need to think about as far as the legal issues go? And North Carolina has um, has stepped up pretty early in this in this uh, uh, area and uh, has some laws that uh, deal with that. And it's the Identity Theft Protection Act that requires uh, businesses uh, to actually notify their customers if there's a security breach. And you know, even with ransomware, if they don't take it and use it, but if they just take it or if they lock you out, that's more than likely, uh, and I'm going to say probably uh, sufficient for um, the notice provisions to be uh, queued up under the Identity Theft Protection Act. So if you are a business owner, it doesn't matter if you're incorporated or if it's a sole proprietor uh, in North Carolina, if you have uh, some kind of issue with um, ransomware or uh, someone gets into your computer system, um, what what do you have to do? Well, if there's a security breach, if, if it's involving personal information uh, with, say, for example, customers' names or uh, names of individuals, their first and last name, uh, it also includes uh, if you're using, if you have social security numbers or maybe uh, tax identification uh, numbers for companies, if you have driver's license uh, numbers or state identification numbers. Uh, I don't know many of our clients that use passport numbers, but if you, if you maintain, say, copies of checking accounts or if you keep the checking or savings account numbers, uh, credit card numbers, those kinds of things, a lot of those things are thankfully encrypted. But if you have anything like that, uh, digital signatures, um, uh, an email address in, in accounts as well, um, and their name and address, uh, or if there's an internet username and password to get into, if your customers have access to their, their database in your business, those are the, that's the information that people uh, obviously want secured. So if you have a security breach and you're dealing with ransomware issues, um, and that happens, then what do you, does a business owner have to do? They have to notify um, the customers within a reasonable period of time. The statute doesn't have a, uh, a, a drop-dead deadline, um, but they must notify them within a reasonable uh, period of time without, and the statute, I think, says without unreasonable delay, um, and give them a general description of the security breach incident, the type of information uh, that was uh, obtained or, or what was breached, uh, the efforts you're going through to safeguard that information and so forth, and then give them some other information as well. You can send that to them by email. You can do it by mail. Obviously, uh, that gets to be expensive. You have to do it actually by mail, potentially. Uh, <clears throat> but the statute, there's there, it, there's a statute that talks about it. And 
the reason we feel like this is sort of pertinent for our, our listeners is it's always seems like, I mean, it, it happens all year long, but it always seems like it picks up the first of the year. I don't know why. I don't know if the, the thieves are um, lazy in November, December and don't hit people as often or if they're doing the work behind the scenes and it just sort of pops up. But we've seen a, uh, several articles recently and, and we just know statistically uh, it's going to happen. Um, so t- t- you get protected and there's a lot of things you can do certainly from a technical technical standpoint to hopefully safeguard yourself. But also, Ian, I know you and I talked about earlier, insurance is a, is something that you can purchase. And you, d- you used to actually, a number of years ago, you actually got it automatically. And then they started realizing that's a, that's a capital market. And they started selling that as a separate policy. Um, you got any thoughts or suggestions with helping business owners on the insurance issue side? Um, well, I, I think what I would recommend is that whoever your primary source of insurance happens to be, I would start with that broker or that company. And um, like with all insurance policies, you really need to understand what you're getting, what are you paying good money for, and what does it cover you for, what doesn't it cover you for. Um, Because uh, what you were just describing, James, just the notification piece can be quite expensive depending on how large your organization is, how much data you have. Um, But this situation, if you get hit with ransomware or any type of hacking attempt, uh, it just creates a huge mess, not only from the fact that, well, you're potentially locked out of your files and that slows down your ability to do business completely, um, but having to just deal with this it would be really nice to have uh, the help of professionals who can come in and uh, make this inconvenient situation as least inconvenient as possible. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, exploring insurance for something like this is unfortunately becoming more and more important for uh, various businesses, no matter how big you are. And I, I would add to that, and it's great advice you've got there, Ian, is the thing I've talked to several people in the industry about is when you look at the insurance policy, the definition sections are really key because you think, okay, I got ransomware or, or um, identity theft protection insurance, right? They cover me for everything. No, it doesn't. Really read your the definition section. And if you're like I am, I'm not a techie, right? I get, I, I might get to understand uh, maybe, ha- <clears throat> excuse me, half of it. You may even want to have that, have your IT department look through the policy so they can decide does this adequately cover us because you can actually get that those kinds of things changed potentially but once you buy it you've got it and if you put it on a shelf and think you're protected and then something happens and you wind up later you go man that didn't help me at all um so just make sure you know what you're getting in that yeah. respect it's no different than any insurance product uh insurance companies are they're necessary evil in my opinion but uh they also, they're smart folks, and they put exclusions in insurance policies <laughs> for a reason. That's right. Um, so you need to make sure that what you're, you think you're buying coverage for isn't somehow excluded because of your particular circumstances. Um, so depending on how much of your customer's data you are required to have access to on a regular basis because of the nature of your business, I would say the more important it is that you uh, really make sure that you have a good insurance policy in place. Yeah. And, you know, there's another whole issue of 
whether or not, let's just say, for example, one of our listeners, their business gets hacked and their their information gets out. They say their social security number or maybe a credit card, and all of a sudden their um, credit reporting or their credit history is tanked because of some nefarious individual making you know purchases under their name and and it's going to take a while and when this law got initially passed and there are some teeth in this about the liability side of it and there's other laws as well that help uh protect individuals where that happens but it's it's really hard to to trace it back i think to a a particular incident but you need to look at your insurance coverage because you gotta realize not only do you have an expense side of getting your stuff back up and running but you also potentially have a liability um, to maybe the state and or to individuals um, where their their personal identification information has been disclosed. Um, anyway, just an idea, something to think about. Um, we don't. It's not. This is not a, a silver bullet to, to handle all those issues, but just realize it's out there and it's not going to go away. In fact, it's going to probably become more prevalent. And we just need. We all need to work at it hard to make sure you protect your business. So, Ian, I know you're going to start talking to us about trials and judgments, and uh, we look forward to hearing what you're going to talk about there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so mm-hmm. during our last episode, we talked about um, really the litigation process if you have a contested lawsuit, and I believe we stopped right around the summary judgment phase. So a trial is what you get to enjoy um, if at the summary judgment phase the court concludes that there's some fact issue which needs to be resolved. So if there remains a fact issue, then uh, we have what's called a fact finder, which can either be a judge in the case of a bench trial or a jury. Um, and their job is to resolve any disputed facts. Um, so uh, one thing to note about this is that either side Uh, has the ability to demand a jury trial. Even in a simple matter, it's possible for somebody to demand that their uh, dispute be resolved through a jury. Uh, That's because you have a constitutional right to a jury trial. Um, If, on the other hand, both sides agree to waive that constitutional right to a jury trial, then what you do is you try the case uh, in front of a judge in what's called a bench trial, Um, So there the judge is kind of serving two purposes. His job is to hear the evidence, take the evidence, and uh, resolve those factual disputes, but he also has to sit in the role of the judge and resolve any legal issues that come up during the course of the trial, um, most often objections. Um, Regardless of whether you're going to have a jury trial or a bench trial, the ultimate goal, really the only goal, the only purpose of a trial is to resolve disputed issues of fact. So this can be uh, a question as to liability, for instance, whether somebody actually owes a debt or whether they actually breached a contract, Um, or it could be a fact issue as to if that is the case, um, how much money is owed. Uh, And the idea is that we have this neutral fact finder, whether the judge or the jury, that's gonna help uh, the truth come out through the trial process. In a jury trial, what's going to happen is the jury, uh, they hear the case and then they uh, get to decide what the facts actually are. They uh, decide which side is more persuasive, what the evidence shows, um, 
and then the judge is there really just to rule on legal matters, which tends to involve you know, what information gets in front of the jury um, and what stays out of court. Um, so, James, why don't you uh, explain to us what what a trial really is? You know, Ian, if you ask any attorney that does litigation, this is like rare rabbit getting thrown in the briar patch, man. It is what you really hope that you get to do because it's what is it's fun. Now I can, we can tell you most of the time client, that's not what a client wants to hear. Um, cause it's not fun for the client most of the time. Um, but a, a trial really isn't when there are issues, like Ian said, issues that have yet to be resolved. Um, and the trier of fact, that's either the judge or the jury listens to the argument, try to try to figure out what those issues are and what the evidence uh, points to the answers to be. Um, and there's not one, you know, a trial can be, if you know, we, we've had bench trials that are probably maybe an hour or two at the, at the least, probably up to days. And some people have some types of cases have, you know, a trial that might last upwards to a month or more. Uh, and I don't think, have you ever been in a trial for a month? No, I haven't either. I mean, week and a half, I think has been my, maybe a week and a half, two weeks has been my long, longest trial. And, and I'll tell you, when you're in, when you're in the litigation, it's, that feels like a month. <laughs> I've never done a month, but, uh, anyway, it, you know, it, it depends on if it's with the bench trial and that's when a judge hears it. Uh, those are generally more, uh, efficient, uh, time-wise. And, and just when you have a jury, it's just more people and it's more moving around and things you can and can't say in front of the jury. Uh, and just the speed of it's just a whole lot different. Um, some cases can be tried, obviously, just like we said, a few hours. Um, and basically, a trial is an opportunity to present the evidence. And again, that's, you know, every side thinks, obviously, that the other side's evidence is wrong, or at least most of the time it thinks it's wrong. Um, and you, you present that to a, a third party, the judge or the jury, to evaluate the evidence. And then they decide what happens and how do they render a verdict from that. Um, and generally speaking, you know, you've seen movies and sometimes those movies or TV shows are accurate, but generally how it works is you have an opening statement. Each side gets a, a chance to make an opening statement. That's sort of a forecast or a, a presentation of what the evidence is going to be. And there's y'all, there are books and videos and classes that teach you how to do all this stuff. And some of it's really, really good. Um, and then the presentation of the plaintiff's evidence. You know, you call witnesses, you have documents that you get into evidence. The witnesses testify. They also are cross-examined. That is, the other side gets to ask the witness questions. Um, and again, the defendant will, uh, again, seek to have the plaintiff's case dismissed, typically. Um, that's a, that's just a see if the spaghetti sticks on the wall if you throw it against it. Uh, and the, once the plaintiff is finished producing evidence, and that's including the witnesses and documents and all the testimony, then the defense gets to do the same thing. Uh, they have testimony. They'll have documents they produce in the evidence. And again, it's it's a battle of you know what the evidence is and whether or not there are rules that that certain evidence can come in and certain evidence can't, and how it can come in. Um, and and you know without getting into the evidentiary issues, there's a whole bunch of stuff that a, a lot of different rules that the attorneys and the and the court has to entertain to determine what is justified evidence to come in and what's not. Um, and then the fact finder, that is the judge or the jury, makes the ultimate decision. Um, 
the judge could consider the matter or the jury goes into the jury room to do that. And um, then the the time period starts when you're waiting for the verdict. And I know, Ian, you're going to talk to us about the verdict, but how's, how does your stomach feel when you're waiting for the verdict? It's, it's always uh, a little bit nerve wracking because at that point you've done everything you can do and the, it's in somebody else's hands. That's right. Um, so you want to talk to us a little bit about um, the just that work and how, how that goes? Yeah. Um, so a verdict is, that is the fact finder's decision. So in a bench trial, what often happens uh, is the uh, judge may announce their decision uh, in open court. So uh, I've had a bench trial where we've tried a case for a week. The judge has been sitting there listening to everything, listening to us argue about whatever. And uh, he knows pretty quickly once uh, the last word of the closing statements are over what, what direction he's going to go. Uh, so there's no need to keep everybody in suspense. Uh, potentially in more complicated cases, um, the judge may want to hear everything. They've got their notes. Um, and then they, they may want to take it under advisement for a little while and really think about it and have that uh, deliberation, if there is such a thing with themselves, as to uh, how this case ought to be resolved based on the evidence that came out in court. With a jury trial, on the other hand, um, the verdict uh, comes back after the jury has uh, had the opportunity to go back to the jury room and uh, to uh, to uh, just yeah deliberate and then come up with their uh, their answer. And I know you you uh, I've just I gave uh, Ian a sign with my hand just a minute ago. He's like, "What are you talking about?" So uh, talk to us about once that jury verdict or the or the bench trial a judge gives a judgment. What happens then? Um, so the, the judgment, what that is, is it's a document that outlines um, what a party has been awarded with their lawsuit. Uh, at the end of the day, what a judgment is, is a piece of paper, um, but it can be a really powerful piece of paper that can be utilized to collect the money that uh, the court has now decided that you're due from the other side. Remember, at the beginning of the lawsuit, um, you claimed you were owed something and the other side as if you have trial, they've disagreed about it. Well, once you got your judgment and the court has ruled with you that says, yes, you in fact are owed the money. Uh, the judgment needs to be clear um, because number one, it's the document uh, that an appeal is going to be taken from. Um, or if there's no appeal, it's what the clerk is going to look at as we undertake our post-judgment collection efforts. Whatever's in that judgment, that is what uh, the court will look at as we're trying to uh, ultimately collect uh, on the judgment. And the judgment's going to include uh, the principal amount that was awarded, interest, uh, hopefully a post-judgment interest rate, uh, any attorney's fees that the court has uh, ordered or due, uh, and after a trial, usually you're going to have uh, in your judgment a summary of any fact findings and legal uh, conclusions that were necessary uh, to the formulation of that judgment. Um, so, James, tell us about uh, when a judgment uh, really becomes a judgment. 
Yeah, and that, you know, that's a great question. So, you know, once let's just say that the judge reads, if it's a jury, reads the, the jury's verdict, right, or a judge announces his verdict from the bench, does that automatically become a judgment? No. Um, and a lot of times uh, you got to have a piece of paper that outlines it. And as Ian said, it really doesn't matter what that piece of paper says and how it's written. You really want to make sure that it's written, hopefully, as clearly as possible and the reason that's important is this later on a clerk um, and or attorneys and maybe a, a court is going to look back at that. If there's any question, they go, well, what was the judgment, right? What was the, what did the court award either the jury or, or the judge? And if you make it clear so that it's easy to calculate it, it, it just makes it so much easier. And I have, I know we both have read judgments where you go, man, that thing is complicated, right? It's just not easy. Um, so if you can make it easy, that's, that's really the, the, the intent of it. But, um, once the, the judgment's in, you know, um, rendered, then you have to write it out. And a lot of times the court wants both parties, the plaintiff and the defendant, to agree to whatever those, you know, however it's written out. And it's got to match what either the court said or the jury said. And some defendants um, will try to delay or drag their feet in approving it just pushes it off you know, from becoming a judgment, but it's not a real judgment until it's reduced in writing and signed and then clocked in or, or entered into the court system. And there's a clock clocking system, a stamp, if you will, when that becomes official. Um, and sometimes the clocking in date is totally different, even from the signature date. And the signature date is different from the date that the court actually awarded the judgment. Uh, that is, you know, announce it from the bench. Um, so those things can can all um, be different dates, but it really the key is have it. It's got to be in writing, signed by the judge or the court, and it's got to be clocked in. That's when you uh, have a, a defined judgment. Uh, so once that's entered in, what happens next? I mean, is it, it's a piece of paper you won. Does the other side just write a check to you? Uh, very rarely. Um but as is often the case in anything to deal with litigation, um, what happens next is that we have to wait. Um, so in North Carolina state court, uh, we have to wait at least 30 days before taking any additional steps. And what this is, is the appeal period. Um, so assuming you've had a trial, um, you've negotiated the form of the judgment, the judgment's been signed by the judge, it's been clocked in, at that point, a really important deadline for both parties starts to run, uh, which is the appeal deadline. So we can't take any steps on collecting on a judgment until the period that um, the parties have to appeal has expired. Um, and every now and again, we'll get surprised and in that 30-day period, uh, notice of appeal shows up, and that means, well... You've got your judgment, but the other side wants another a higher level court to look at it. Um, and depending on what kind of judgment it is, there's all sorts of issues surrounding that, you know, whether the other side has to post a bond, all sorts of things that uh, are not really something we're going to get into today, but uh, that come up while we're uh, waiting to collect on a judgment. But in the event nobody appeals, then what happens, James? You know, I, I literally thought in law school was when when a judge made a decision or a jury did and, you know, one side wins and the other side loses. I really thought once they announced that, that the losing side wrote, you know, pulled the checkbook out and they said, OK, here's how much I owe. And they wrote the check. I had no idea that that didn't work that way. Um, 
And then I, once I started uh, into the legal practice, I realized that there's a whole group of people that um, do well at collecting on judgments. And I feel like we do an enormously great job of that. And I don't say that to be boastful. It's just some people are good at some things and others are good at others. And this is one where I feel like we do a great job of helping our clients is, is after the after the, the whole court is over about how to collect the money. And assuming that there's no appeal, then there's what's called the post-judgment collection efforts will start taking over. And what you start looking for is, you know, what kind of entity is the debtor, right? Is it a corporation? Is it an individual, a partnership? Um, and then because every every different type of entity has a different way of how do you approach that to collect the, on the judgment. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit or a whole lot more detail about it on our next podcast. Um, but we're going to be looking at that. But it's it's really you're trying to find what the assets are, where those assets are. How do you get it right? Obviously, we'd love to have cash, but you can't you're not supposed to take a gun out and go threaten them to get the cash. Uh, but there are a whole lot of legal ways that we can uh, entertain to to try to collect on that. And so we're going to be talking about that uh, in our next podcast, which will be a lot of fun. So, uh, Ian, I know you've got you've had a couple of questions that uh, have, have popped up recently that would we think it might be interesting to our, our listeners. Yeah. So the, the topic I'm going to talk about uh, this week that has, has come, come up a lot in our office here lately uh, is the enforceability of a contract. And we've typically gotten this question uh, in two real categories recently. Um, the first category is that somebody has uh, what would otherwise be an enforceable contract, and they're trying to avoid it due to some COVID-19 related circumstance. Uh, the other question or category that's popped up about enforceability of contracts is that somebody wants to make sure that they're putting together a contract that can actually be enforced later. Particularly, I think what's spawning a lot of this is the fact that their contract is getting scrutinized a little more uh, largely due to COVID-related issues and people just unfortunately uh, being in a tough spot, not able to pay. Um, I think the general rule uh, is that when you're determining whether a contract is enforceable or not, what we're going to do is look at the party's intent at the moment of contracting. So what what a contract is in its most basic form is uh, a piece of paper that outlines each side's rights and responsibilities for a particular transaction or circumstance. Um, so what we look at is, was there a meeting of the minds as evidenced by the contract between the parties um, that adequately defines the terms of this transaction. Um, so we look at are all the material terms in the contract. And depending on what type of transaction you're dealing with, these can be things like price, the duration of the contract. Um, and really what we look at is, is, is the contract sufficiently clear that we can know with a reasonable amount of certainty what the parties intended. Um, hopefully, the contract's going to be in writing, but maybe not. Uh, we've got something in North Carolina called the Statute of Frauds, which uh, dictates which contracts are required to be in writing. Um, uh, even if your contract isn't necessarily required to be in writing, I think that uh, the general rule is to make sure that you're using a good written contract. Um, if you want, if you've got a contract and you're seeking to avoid the terms of that contract, uh, I'm sad to say that uh, it's difficult to do. 
Um, it might be somewhat less difficult to do uh, because of COVID, but what anybody's going to have to do if they want to get out of a contract is look at what that contract actually says. Um, and the most common circumstance we've encountered here lately is, is there anything in this contract that might contemplate uh, a global pandemic and the effects of a global pandemic on the party's obligations under the contract? Um, as far as I'm aware, at least in North Carolina, we don't have any case law dealing specifically with COVID-19 and its effects yet. I suspect that uh, there are some cases that are uh, likely going to be coming out in the not-too-distant future that might give us some guidance on that. Um, but what I would say is, in general, that a contract's in writing, contains all the material terms, and that there's no ambiguity, um, that everybody's going to be required to do whatever the contract says. And if that contract says, all right, under this circumstance, you've got a way out, then well, that's what the contract says. But if it doesn't provide for a way out, then unfortunately the contract's likely going to be something that you have to abide by despite the circumstances that have changed. Um, what I would say is that really every contract is going to be different in some way. Um, there's all sorts of different situations, all sorts of different ways to put together a contract. Um, so if you'd like to have a conversation about writing and putting together a quality and enforceable contract, we'd be glad to talk with you about that because I, I really don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution out there. Uh, alternatively, if you already have a contract uh, and you want us to take a look at it and see if uh, there might be any relief available to you uh, in light of COVID or in light of anything else, uh, we'd be more than happy to uh, talk with you about that as well. You know, Ian, one of the things we talked about yesterday on that question was, you know, if you have a contract that already exists or if you're drafting one and you said it, you'd call us and we'd like to take a look at it, have someone look at it, right? Even if it's on your own team, but make sure they're not aware of it, of the, all the facts. And the reason we said it is this, it helps fill in the holes or go, hey, what about in this situation? That doesn't, it's not covered or just have another set of eyes look at it. It really does make a big difference because we do that here all the time. Well, hey, what do you think of this? And look at it. And I took in a, a contract revision yesterday. He's like, well, what about this? I mean, it's just nice to see, uh, have someone else take a look at it to look and see if there's another opportunity to write it in a different way or if there's a hole or uh, that needs to be filled in or you need to have some clarity on some other issue. So hopefully that helps y'all and um, it gives you some guidance uh, in looking at contract language uh, going forward. So. Ian, it's always a pleasure hanging out with you, man. Thank you for letting us do this with you. And, uh, folks, we hope you all have enjoyed this podcast, and we look forward to connecting with you on our next session.